Hello, and welcome to the Space Coast Pet Podcast, the podcast for pets and the people who love them. Now, here's your host, veterinarian Dr. Roger Welton. Hello, pet lovers. Happy Thursday to you, and welcome to the Space Coast Pet Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Roger Welton, aka Dr. Roger, coming to you from the Florida Space Coast. Welcome to our episode, The Monsters Within. Ooh, don't worry, folks, it won't be too scary. We're going to be talking about common parasites that can affect dogs, cats, and even be transmitted to people. How to prevent them, how to treat them, all that good stuff coming up. Stay tuned. But first, we have some listener email. This is an interesting one, so... Let's get right to it. Dear Dr. Roger, I'm so glad I listened to your spay-neuter and leptospirosis episodes. I definitely understand these controversies better, but I have a big problem. I recently purchased a French bulldog, and in my purchase contract with the breeder that I signed, if I allow my vet to give my puppy the leptospirosis vaccine and have her spayed prior to have her... Pardon me, let me rephrase that. If I allow my vet to give my puppy the leptospirosis vaccine or have her spayed prior to her having at least two heats, my health warranty is on the contract is void. I want to do what is best for the health of my puppy, but in doing so, I risk losing the health guarantee from my breeder. I do not know what to do. Please help. Kindest regards, Amber, Newport Beach, California. Uh, so... I would I would say, Amber, if you have an attorney friend, have them take a look at it because I'm not a lawyer. What I have learned, though, is that these many of these contracts are not really following the letter of the law in terms of their enforceability. So as far as the health warranty is concerned, my understanding is that they're not really enforceable. I don't think you have a lot of legal recourse if you go back, you know, say two years from now and there's something congenital surfaces with your Frenchie, I I think you'd have a hard time unless the breeder would you know voluntarily compensate you for whatever would need to be done to make that right, um, which which I'd, I'd love to think that they would, but um, you know the if they decide to fight that, you don't really don't have a, a lot of legal recourse there because you'd be going into small claims court. You know the the expense of it alone uh, probably wouldn't be worth it. Um, and uh, on on the flip side of that, the, the the breeder really has you know no 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 once they once they sell the dog to you, and again check with a lawyer on this because every every state's different. But every state that I'm aware of, um, it, the animals companion animals are considered property. You know whether we like to think of them that way or not. I certainly don't think of mine as property, but you know, as soon as you purchase, you you own that animal, and and the breeder really has no no right to make any decisions as far as your pet's health, and they have no right to even have any information about it. So some of those contracts are not necessarily about a health warranty, but like that if if you if you don't allow the heats to happen or you do the leptospirosis, uh, a common thing I'm seeing lately, by the way, that they can actually you know confiscate the dog. I mean, that's completely not enforceable. But as far as the health warranty, I really don't think they're worth much, to be quite honest with you. But remember, each successive heat your Frenchie has, we're looking at, you know, a slightly decreased, not slightly, a significantly decreased preventative aspect of 
memory cancer, as I discussed in that episode. You know, and that's important. Uh, you, you know, you spare before the first heat, which there's no risk in a French bulldog to do that. Um, you know, you do it around six months of age. You, you know, that, that you're, you're basically almost guaranteeing she won't have memory cancer. Um, and, of course, we know how I feel about leptospirosis. It, it, it is, you know, you're in California, Newport Beach, pretty suburban area. There's going to be lepto around there. So, I don't know, make, make, make your best informed decision. Maybe if you can consult with a lawyer, take a look at that contract. But my understanding is that those, those health warranties are, are not mu, mu, uh, worth much more than the paper they're written on. But thank you for your, your email. It's very, uh, it's very enlightening, you know, how uh, strongly opinionated uh, breeders are becoming about these topics to the extent that they're putting them in language of the purchase contract. Um, it's amazing to me, but... At any rate, let's move on to the monsters within. So <clears throat> my inspiration for this particular episode, you know, usually it's either a listener email that inspires me to make a whole show about a certain topic, or it's an experience I had. And and this one involved not just a patient of mine, uh, it involved my, my father. Uh, so my parents adopted this puppy, and the puppy unfortunately came with hookworm, and uh, I treated the hookworm, and then when we retested, the the, the puppy still had hookworm. Um, and what we're seeing right now, unfortunately, with hookworm, it's been traditionally ever so treatable, but there are we're getting a res- resistant strain of hookworm, and it's becoming resistant to conventional therapy. It's not epidemic status right now. Uh, came, I come across this very occasionally, but, you know, it's not the first time I saw it, and this, it happened to happen in my own parents' new puppy. And here's the, the, the tricky part. My father contracted the hookworm, not in the sense that, you know, the intestinal manifestation like we see in, in dogs where it's going to colonize in the gut and cause uh, GI issues and, and whatnot, in people, it doesn't get past a certain larval stage because we're not a definitive host, but that larval stage can migrate in the skin. We call that cutaneous larval migraines. So my poor dad was getting these like these spiderweb-like lines, purplish-reddish lines in his skin, and you know he had no idea that cutaneous larval migraines could happen. Got them checked out, and you know, lo and behold, dermatologist asked. Do you do you happen to have a dog? And, and as a matter of fact, I I have a puppy. He said, and essentially uh, discovered that the hookworm caused cutaneous larval migraines in his skin. Very itchy, very uncomfortable. Um, treatable, thankfully, but uh, you know <laughs> that that just made me want to spark awareness about parasites. In that, yeah, they don't only potentially just hurt our pets, but they can they can affect people too. So let's talk about all that for dogs and cats. Let's start with the worms. So both dogs and cats can have roundworms, hookworms, and whipworms. And essentially, these are all intestinal worms that colonize the gut. Um, in dogs and cats, they're going to cause GI symptoms. And essentially, when you're looking at puppies and kittens, most of them start start out life with at least roundworms. And the reason for that is because as soon as the mother has 
whether we're looking at a, a queen on the feline side or a B-I-T-C-H on the on the dog side. I still have a hard time saying that about a dog, but <laughs> excuse me. The um, as soon as the milk letdown happens, so the kittens and puppies can respectively feed, they they can activate dormant larvae that have been sitting in the mammary glands of these animals in what's called a hypobiotic state. So there's not an active infection systemically, but they're sitting in the mammaries that those glands activate and actually they get passed in the milk itself. These are very, very teeny tiny, uh, virtually microscopic larvae, uh, but they are infective larvae. And so, but just by virtue of feeding, we end up with worm infestations in a lot of puppies and kittens. And those are called roundworms. Uh, and so let's let's talk about roundworms real quick because this is uh, a little concerning when it comes to children under the age of five. They're, again, we're not the definitive host for these things, but they can reach a certain larval stage where they can migrate around our tissues. And in a very concerning uh, fashion, in small children, again, five years of age or younger, they can migrate into the eye, eyes and cause ocular larval migraines and cause irreversible blindness. This is a very tragic thing. It's not terribly common. I don't want to induce mass panic, but I want you to be especially careful because you never know where things can happen. And, you know, these things transmit by fecal oral cycle. And so kids, you know, they're not the cleanliness the cleanliest of, 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 of humans. Um, I raised children myself. They're older now and they're, they still don't have the best hygiene at respectively 14 and 12 years old. Um, so now you take a look at, you know, these little, little ones and, you know, they're handling the animals who lick themselves and then lick their butts and then lick themselves and then they lick the child and, you know, the child's touching them and then touching their face and, you know, infections can happen. And so you want to be very careful about, number one, you have a new kitten puppy. You want to make sure that they have a full deworming schedule. Uh, You want to make sure that after the deworming schedule, you double check that the, the worms are cleared. And then on a yearly basis, you want to submit a stool sample, um, to check for these things. And, um, you know, the roundworms are one of the things that can be concerning. And then the hookworms, we already talked about uh, cutaneous larval migraines that can affect people. Thankfully, not something that's going to cause something as tragic as blindness, but something you still would need to deal with. And my dad didn't particularly enjoy it, and it took him a few weeks to clear it. And he was very uncomfortable in the meantime. Whipworms, we don't really have a, a major zoonot, a significant zoonotic risk to those, but they can make our pets pretty sick. Um, luckily, these you know these things are are fairly expediently treated, and you know not too big of a deal in most cases to treat, unless we come across the resistant strains of of hookworm. Uh, in which case, you know we have to get a little bit more creative to to clear those, and we do have protocols. Uh, for those and hopefully you don't come across those but I strongly advise you know being aggressive with those kittens and puppies as far as deworming is concerned and let's also follow up with with stool samples here's my policy generally I'm coming across the uh, new pets new puppies new kittens by the time they're around six to eight years of age years listen to me I mean six to not six to eight mo- uh, weeks of age not years and by this time 
uh, you know, the hope is that they've had some initial veterinary care, either through the shelter or through the, the uh, breeders, and th they have a relationship with the veterinarian, and there's been some level of deworming uh, to, you know, we'd like to start that. I generally like to start deworming um, the kittens and puppies uh, at three weeks and then do it again at five weeks of age. And, um, and then, you know, we check that, we check that first stool at their first uh, visit that's going to have immunizations at eight weeks of age. And so, you know, I'd like to check a stool then, and then we generally have our second pup, uh, puppy kitten visit at 11 weeks, and then our third uh, visit at 14 weeks. And then depending on your state's legalities, you can do the rabies at that last visit, and that's the end of it as far as the kitten puppy wellness. In certain breeds of dog, we will actually want to do a fourth uh, DHPP vaccine because there are some breeds that are especially susceptible to parvo, and um, especially when they're young, and that would be like Rottweilers are one of those. So we'll have them come back uh, one last time at 17 weeks. But generally speaking, at the eight week and the 14 week, uh, even if we were negative at the eight week, I still want to recheck to just reassert that we are negative again at 14 weeks. So we're doing in the in the course of all that puppy wellness at the beginning and the end, um, we're checking those stools because number one, they don't always pass the eggs that we're looking for that give us a positive diagnosis. So we just want to do our due diligence to make sure we get two negative samples. Secondly, the uh, kittens and puppies can commonly reinfect because they there is environmental contamination either from their own stool or they might, you know, they're so susceptible to parasites when they're young, they might pick it up from the outside. Uh, a common a common vector for that is feral cats that walk across your uh, yard, lay some turds around, especially when it comes to dogs uh, that, that are going outside. They cannot resist a nice scrumptious cat turd. They eat it. If it's infected with a worm, they get it. And so um, due diligence in doing at least a couple of samples through the kitten and puppy series is very important. Then, of course, the yearly stool analysis is is very important. Um, so, those are the three uh, common worms that we, uh, I would say, most commonly see as far as kittens and puppies are concerned. Down the road, uh, especially cats, but we do see this in dogs. And uh, there is a a type of tapeworm called Dipollinium caninum uh, that. That is actually a, it's a tapeworm that it comes from actually the gut of the flea. So what happens is the dog or cat has fleas. They naturally try to groom out the fleas. In the process, they ingest the fleas. The larvae that are infective for this particular tapeworm are so microscopically tiny. They live in the gut of the flea, and that's how they get infected. So the, the, the dog actually has to, or the cat has to eat, the flea to get the disease. Interestingly, once they reach the point where you're seeing these little rice-sized, uh, wiggly little tapeworms in the stool, that is not the infective form. So they could, if once they reach that point, let's say a dog or a cat pooped out, you know, stool with all those little uh, visible, grossly visible tapeworms. If a dog ate that stool, it would not be positive for them. It would just digest them. Uh, but it, it specifically has to come from the flea. That's how the lifestyle work, or life, listen to me, lifestyle. The life cycle works for that particular tapeworm. So the best way to prevent that one is to 
put the pa patient on a good flea preventative to keep the fleas off the dog and the cat, and they will not get that particular tapeworm. There is another common type of tapeworm that we see in cats specifically. It is a big ugly one that they poop out, and it looks like some prehistoric um, long snaky creature. It's really creepy to look at. It's called Spirometra. Not as much of a problem as we head north and we're not seeing lizards uh, that you know commonly reside in our you know subtro subtropical regions. So we see a lot of Spirometra here in Florida. I'm sure you see some in Texas, all along the Gulf Coast states, probably some in Georgia and even the Carolinas. Wherever you see uh, you know gecko type lizards that you know run around, cats like to hunt those and then they get spirometra. Not a deadly problem, neither is the dipolidium caninum flea tapeworm. They're very treatable, both of them. They just gradually kind of chip away at the patient's health uh, as far as the, you know, stealing the nutrients and they get a little bit of ill thrift, sometimes some GI symptoms. Not terribly dangerous, but they can definitely be an inconvenience and certainly kind of gross to see. <laughs> so, you know, those, that kind of covers most of the worms we're talking about. So what else do we see? Well, we see things other than worms. We can see protozoal parasites. So the two most common forms of those would be, there's one called Giardia. And Giardia is kind of ubiquitous. Giardia is going to exist wherever there's fresh water. And sometimes even uh, brackish water, it can exist there. It's very easily transmissible uh, with, by, by what's called the fecal-oral route. So... Um, you know, uh, one animal poops it out, the other animal either comes, sniffs their stool, eats their stool, or simply sniffing or licking the other animal's butt, which happens all the time, as we well know, and that's how it's transmitted. I, I diagnose positive Giardias all the time, even in healthy adult animals. Again, not a terribly dangerous uh, parasite. It is generally, usually pretty easily treated with a, a simple course of medication, but again, it simply, it could cause chronic diarrhea uh, and it chips away at the patient's health by, by you know, stealing the nutrients as well. And the other protozoal we commonly see is called coccidia. And coccidia, you know, again, is going to be very similar to giardia. It's going to be transmitted the same way. And we see that, you know, quite, quite a bit. Excuse me. And so those are the main group of parasites that we're talking about as far as the monsters within. But there's one big monster that uh, is really a big problem here in Florida and you know, elsewhere in the country, basically wherever there's mosquitoes, you're gonna see some level of this disease and that's called heartworm disease. And that's a big monster within. It can infect cats. I'm gonna get to cats in just a moment and just kind of explain how it affects cats because um, they are not the definitive host, but let's talk about dogs first. So essentially what happens is the mosquito, an infected mosquito carries a little infective larvae called microfilaria. That microfilaria gets injected into the dog when the mosquito feeds on the dogs. Mosquitoes will feed readily on dogs as readily as they'll feed on people. Here in Florida, we don't really get a season off from mosquitoes. They are maybe in less numbers in the winter, but we are never without them. If we have one of our little mini cold spells and it's windy, we might get a reprieve from them. But as soon as it heats up and the wind comes down, those mosquitoes are out there and they are ready to feed. In more temperate areas, you're not going to have as bad a mosquito problem in the winter. In fact, you know, it, it, they all but go away. 
So, for example, like when I started my career up in Long Island, New York, it was so cold. There certainly were no mosquitoes. We actually did not advocate for heartworm preventative treatment over the winter because without mosquitoes, there's really no way to get heartworm. And that was our policy back then. Um, I'm not sure what New York vets are doing at this point, but you know, just because you get a seasonal reprieve from mosquitoes, when they come back, mark my words, they come back with a vengeance. Some of those mosquito blooms, as soon as the weather gets, gets warm again, you get some moisture, those mosquitoes come out in full force. And you definitely want to protect your dog uh, you know, in a temper climate, certainly in those northern climates. So what does heartworm do? Uh, colonizes specifically the right side of the heart and the right side of the heart communicates with the lungs via what's called the pulmonary artery and so the worms travel back and forth from the right atrium of the heart to the uh, uh, via the pulmonary artery to the lungs and back so it can actually cause uh, major scarring of the lungs certainly it's going to damage the heart muscle and the result of heartworm ultimately is the entirety of the heart gets damaged over time and they go into right-sided heart failure. These dogs are also clot prone, so they can die from what's called a thromboembolus. And uh, it's just a very, very bad, very, very serious disease in dogs. Let's talk about our feline friends in heartworm. Uh, they, do, they can contract heartworm via the same way that dogs do, the bite of the mosquito. Yes, mosquitoes will readily feed on cats. And the heartworm does not lead to colonization of the heart, but will lead to a stage of larval development where they will start crawling around the lungs and cause a, a, a you know, in some cases, a pretty egregious case of asthma. So one of our, I don't want to say common, because asthma in general is common in cats, and I would say the, the majority of cases are allergically based, but what I do is whenever I have an asthmatic cat, I test them for heartworm because that is a common consequence of feline heartworm. So the good news about cats is that if you can uh, keep them stable, the, the the larvae, you know, and keep them stable and keep them away from mosquitoes. The larvae have a, a shelf life of only about three to five years, usually more in the three-year uh, range because of the, fa the fact that cats are not the definitive host. So if we can keep them free of heartworm, those larvae will eventually die. But again, you have this asthma problem. You have the situation where they are, you know, cats as a species are clot prone to begin with uh, just because of their physiology, but they are even more clot prone. So, you know, keeping them stable, that's a whole other discussion of how we keep them stable, but we do not have the safe ability to treat heartworm in cats. Like we can't use the adulticide, you know, the, 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 the treatment that we use in dogs to kill the advanced stages of, of, of larvae. And, you know, of course, thankfully, we don't have adult worms in cats, but we do have advanced stages of larvae that cause these problems, and we can't treat them. It's just not safe to do so. The cat is better off, you know, being uh, treated and monitored and asthma, if it's present, managed until such time that the lifespan of the larvae will, will expire. But in the meantime, uh, even after the fact, 
let's say that that cat is three years later heartworm negative well lots of times that asthma will still linger and it still needs to be managed so good idea to keep the kitty cats from getting heartworm although it's not as common as it is in dogs and certainly not being the definitive host it's not as egregious and tragic as it can be in dogs but that's a major monster within and we want to be very careful about that so how do we prevent all this stuff kind of went through the gamut we you know we went through the kitten and puppy stages well number one as i already mentioned do that yearly stool analysis you know because dogs and cats can both be asymptomatically infected with all of the above whether you're looking at whipworms hookworms roundworms tapeworms the two different varieties or the protozoals, or heartworm disease. So, you know, all of these things don't necessarily show clinical symptoms until, you know, at some point the patient gets so infested that now they're really sick and now it's challenging to deal with and there's consequences of that. So do that yearly sample, even if your pet looks great. I, I, can't, I can't emphasize how important that is. And it's even more important, as we already talked about, if you have children under the age of five. And, you know, when it comes to hookworm, just about any human, my father, yes, he's an older gentleman. He's about 75 years old, but in perfect health. You know, he's a very healthy man. He eats great, uh, takes good care of himself. I wouldn't have expected him to get hookworm, but but yet he, he got the cutaneous larval migraine. So for just about any human, but especially for our, our, our young humans, we want to do those yearly tests. Um, the preventatives these days, uh, we have not just the heartworm prevention in them. We also, uh, most of them have in internal parasite prevention as well in terms of the, the worm parasites. So, uh, you know, a, a good example is you look at uh, the one that I've been using uh, quite a bit lately. It's a newer generation called uh, Symperica Trio. That it's a, it's a flea tick as well as a heartworm, but it also prevents for three types of uh, intestinal worms in in dogs. And so giving that monthly dose, if your dog, let's say, contracts a worm parasite in the early larval stages, you keep up with that monthly heartworm preventative, it's highly likely that you're going to be able to kill that early larval stage before it can take hold and reach adulthood. Once we reach adulthood, those preventatives aren't going to do a whole lot as far as treating the adult parasites, but preventatively, they're very, very effective. So, um, you know, there, there are products out there that, that cover for a lot of, I'm mentioning Semperica Trio because that's, you know, kind of the first all-in-one that gets everything. I'm not being a cheerleader for that particular product. There's a lot of them out there. Talk to your vet about it. Let them know, hey, I want some good parasitic prevention um, in, in it, as far as intestinal is concerned, in addition to the heartworm prevention for my pet. In cats, same thing. Um, and it, one product comes to mind that I really like called Revolution. Revolution is going to prevent for heartworm, but it's also going to help to be very preventative for uh, intestinal worm parasites as well. So, so you know, that's a strategy for your cat. That's actually a topical. It goes in the back of the, uh, you know, just behind the head or uh, on the back of the neck uh, once a month. And, you know, especially if you have a cat that, that goes outdoors and could be susceptible to mosquito bites and other stuff out there that, that can be transmitted parasitically great preventative and again it's not the only game in town there are others out there not being a cheerleader for evolution see what your vet carries and you know let them know what your goals are 
As far as the protozoal parasites, Giardia coccidia, um, really the best way to prevent those is, you know, there, there's no medication that is going to be preventative. Really, it's, it's good environmental control. It's, you know, picking up your pet's stool in a timely fashion. It's not letting your cat outside. Uh, you know, I, I personally am against uh, cats going in and out. Uh, for those of you that have indoor-outdoor cats, uh, please don't get mad at me. I just, I just don't feel cats should be loose like that. They, they, I see the consequences of it. They get more infections. They get injured. They get hit by car. Uh, they get predated upon. Here in uh, Florida, we have bobcats that eat domestic cats. Uh, and of course, we see we see more parasites. But you know, if you've already, you know, committed to that paradigm, and your cat goes outside, well, at least protect them with with something like a Revolution or another product that's comparable. Um, uh, but but really, the best way to to prevent the protozoals for those guys, just don't let them out in the first place. If you know, um, one of the cool things here in Florida, and, and you know, this would apply maybe even to California as well. A lot of us have screeded areas called lanai's. Um, others know, know them as bird cages, and essentially they're these you know, screened-in uh, enclosures that go over our pools, so it keeps debris and bugs and all, frogs and everything else out of, our, out of our pools and keeps mosquitoes off of us so we can be outside at night and not get inundated by mosquitoes. One of the really cool things we have here in Florida, and it's one way we can, we can be outside and, and, and not get absolutely destroyed by mosquitoes uh, in the evenings especially so you know when I when I had cats I would I would uh, let them out on on the lanai and it kind of fulfilled their little outdoorsiness and they got to look around stare at the birds uh, look at the squirrels running back and forth and and still our little geckos and and uh, salamanders would still make their way into the lanai and they'd chase those around and hunt those and you know, the only risk there was spirometra, but by and large, my cats were kept safe and they were not injured. They were very healthy and I never, ever saw a case of Giardia or Coccidia or any worm parasite other than spirometra. Sorry, I did see spirometra in one of them, but other than that, um, by and large, they were, they were parasite free. So keep your cat indoors. Um, the, the potty patrol outside is very important for dogs. You know, they, they drop stool in, in common areas. Usually, you know, many of us have backyards and they go out, just pick up that stool, you know, quickly. Don't let it linger for any long period of time. Keep an eye out for feral cat stool. Uh, that is a common source of parasitism in dogs because they, many of them are kind of gross and they can't refrain from having a nice poopy snack. So, um, that's one way to go, but yeah, that's pretty much the skinny on the major parasites. There are others that are rare, like lung flukes, and, and I'm not going to get into those because you know they're 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 not very common, and um, you know I could I could go down a rabbit hole of you know, there's literally a bazillion of them. <laughs> no, I don't think bazillion's real a real word, but there's a ton of other ones that we see that are just not very common or they're very, very regional that I'm not going to get into, but those are the main ones. And, and I touched on the main ones that could potentially affect uh, humans. So make sure you do do those yearly stool samples. And uh, whenever your pet has diarrhea, especially get them seen. Uh, That is, that is going to be one of our most common signs 
Uh, you know, you don't want to let your pets suffer with that diarrhea, first and foremost. But secondly, you don't want to potentially be catching something from them. That's all I got for you today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next, next time, I will talk to you very soon. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.